1 Samuel. We're starting a series on 1 Samuel, and I get to preach the first part of 1 Samuel um, and to kind of introduce this uh, series to you. Let me just say, if you struggle with reading the Bible, or if you struggle with reading the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, really good to read through. It's a story. It's super easy to follow. It's really easy to see God. This was the first um, Old Testament book that I really like ate up, that I really read all the way through um, in my life. So 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings is really, really special to me. Um, so uh, while we're doing this series, this is a good excuse for you to read it out, you know, try it out and see how it goes for you. I think it'll be super um, enjoyable. All right, let me tell you about me. So some of you guys know that I went on a little break for February, and I went on a break because I needed a break. And when you need a break, you should take a break. So get a kick out. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I didn't need a kick out, I took a break instead. And uh, I'm gonna tell you a little bit why, about why I needed a break. So last year, around this time, I was feeling really, really homesick. I love our city. I love what's happening here. I love being a part of what God is doing here. But I also grew up in Atlanta. And Atlanta has a beauty supply store on every corner. There is a million hair salons to pick from. Lots of clothes. They got the best lemon pepper wings. You know, I just, I, up here y'all like candy pepper and like dry rub. And dry rub is nice, but it's not a lemon pepper, you know? so good, you know, so um, I was feeling really homesick for that, for that kind of familiarity, for family, for all those kind of things, and familiarity and worship. I grew up um, in a healthy church, but it was predominantly black. Our church is trying to do something that we've never seen before, which is be a mixed family, be a family that has different ethnic heritage, different racial heritage, um, just different ages, different everything. And for me, I am down for this mission, but it's not what I grew up with. So I'm learning with all the rest of us on how do we create a family that looks like heaven here on earth. But nevertheless, I was a little homesick for what was familiar. So around this time last year, I went to a conference in Atlanta. I mean, not in Atlanta, the conference was in uh, South Carolina. And it was such a good conference. There was like speakers from all over the place coming, some I knew, some I didn't know. And then there was this lunchtime session and the lunchtime session, I don't know if you're familiar, and I thank you, Jake, for keeping me from tripping and falling. Um, the lunchtime session, I don't know if you're familiar or not, but lunchtime is kind of like when people are sleepy and they just ate. So, like, maybe they're here, maybe they're not. So, the, the conference will kind of put, you know, people we don't know how it's going to go in the lunchtime slot because night is when it's really significant, okay? So, there was this, like, girl from New York. Her name was Katie Kazadi. She is from somewhere in New York. Like, just no, nobody I knew. She's super significant, but nobody that I knew. The girl who led worship was nobody that I knew, but God was there. And that is the session that, like, changed everything for me. I don't know where this woman came from with this word, but when she came, I was just like, <laughs> I just was standing there, like, fully in awe of what God was saying. And she said, she, um, she said she was preparing a year ago from that conference, and she was preaching on Hannah. And she said, um, I will never preach this again, except maybe at a women's conference. And then the next day she got a call to go to the women's conference. And then she preached this message about Hannah. So 
So I'm sitting there listening to her preaching this message about Hannah, and I am like losing my mind. Thank God uh, the girl next to me recorded it. And I was like, hey, can I get that recording? And I still listen to it now. So fast forward, a year goes by, and we are all sitting in Steve's, um, not install installation service. And we're celebrating him um, coming to be our pastor, and I really am so excited about the, God, the thing God is about to do through Steve. I think the Lord really picked him for this time in our, in our church's history, so I'm, I'm here for this. But I was not okay. I had lost my grandma in August, and she raised me. She was everything to me. And I had been feeling homesick, and though I went to this conference, it didn't satisfy everything in me, so I have this homesickness, I have this grief, and it's just a lot. It was a lot going on internally, um, and I just wasn't okay. And so in February, um, right before I took the break, I'm standing at the installation service, and worship is going crazy, and people got ribbons. Joel walking around, handing people ribbons. People like, oh my God, this is great. You know? And I'm not feeling that. I, I, I'm like, you're here, God, but I am not okay. And I don't know how to engage this, because I'm not okay right now. And so I just stood there like this, and I was like, uh, internally, I'm checking my heart. I'm like, God, you know, I, I need you. I lay down, same word, I lay down anything in me that wants to be prideful, haughty, weird, any of that. I just lay all of it down and I need you in this moment. So I'm standing there like this, receiving people running and jumping. I'm standing like this, receiving. And um, the Lord reminds me of this word from a year ago about Hannah. This is February 5th. And I start um, listening to him speak, and it was like he was speaking so clearly. And I think the way my neural pathways works, I'm not good at being still for a long time, but I was totally still in that moment. And I could hear him speak to me. And what I felt like the Lord said, and was at the very end, the last slide, I want y'all to hold on to this. Um, he said to me, I was feeling rejected, disappointed, all these words. He said to me, Kiara, your story of rejection is not my story of rejection. And he said it like a few times, your story of rejection is not my story of rejection. For me, it was rejection and a little bit of disappointment. And so I just sat in that, and then the Lord began to talk to me about Hannah. And then I tell Steve, hey, the Lord's talking to me about Hannah. He's like, well, interestingly enough, we're about to preach about 1 Samuel. And I'm like, well, God, clearly you're saying something. So I just want you to hold on to this piece, because we're going to come back to that by the end of this. But for me, this thing that God has been stirring in me um, has been since February, and I'm excited about what he's doing. I don't think it's finished. I don't think I have this whole word. I think it's still uh, working itself out, but I'm going to give you what I got so far, okay? Are y'all good with all that? All right, let me pray. Jesus, I exalt you. We've already exalted you. We come to you, our shepherd. We are in need of food. We are in need of water. We have no money. We have nothing. But we've come to buy, which is crazy. But you told us to do it, so we're here, and we want what you have. And we want you more than we want what you have. So speak, lead, feed us. Feed us by your hand. Feed us mouth to mouth, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I have a chart. Let me give you some historical context about where this book comes up. Can y'all read this? Thank you, Etsy. Come on, Etsy made this cute millennial-friendly chart with these colors. I'm loving these colors. Okay, so um, you know, Genesis, Genesis, Joel, early books. 
then we got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, Moses is during this time period. Okay, then after that, we got Joshua. So the Lord promised the land to these people, and then Joshua is the person that takes the people into the land that God promises. He said, hey, there are all these ites, Canaanites, Ammonites, Hittites, all the ites are here. Drive them out because this is the land that I've given to you. Some of the tribes listen, they drive them out. Some of them don't. The reason the Lord told them to drive out the people in uh, the promised land was because the people around them were worshiping other gods. And they had some ways of worshiping other gods that were really wicked. I'm talking child sacrifice wicked. Oh, yeah. And I don't think God is for that. He sacrificed his child, but don't sacrifice yours, okay? Don't do that. So it was wicked. He was like, drive them out because I don't want you to be mixed with that. That's not how you worship me. Some people listened, some people didn't. And so what ends up happening is you see the children of Israel start to get mixed with this other way of being. They start to be interested in these other gods. They start to date these other gods. And they start to worship these other gods. So Judges is this period of time where you see the just intense decline of the, uh, the Israelites. And it's gory. Judges is like, ooh, can you really write about that? In a book? You know, like, that's really not great. <laughs> so, so judges, um, you see the decline of that. And the Lord raises up these um, judges, but don't think gavel. Think chief. Think governor. Think, like, ruler. Um, but not king. Like, chief. Think chief. So he raises up these chiefs called judges to, like, correct the people and lead them. But then the judges start being real wicked, and the judges start leading people to worship other gods. So the whole system is just really bad at this point. And there's a phrase, I have it on the slide, that comes up very often in Judges. Maybe four times. You have it. It's Judges. Judges 17 and 6 is one example, but this comes up like four times in Judges. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did what was right in his own eyes. So they were raised for judge. Um, the people would be like, yes, we love you, God. And the people would fall away, and then they would repent, and they would be in sin. And that section of that judge would end with this statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did what was right in his own eyes. Then they'd do the cycle all over again, and it would always end with this phrase. All right, so can we go back to the chart? So... Judges is happening. There's a clear need for two things. One, there was no king in Israel. Two, every man did what was right in his own eyes. So there's a clear need for two things. One, a king. And two, somebody to say, hey, that's not right. Don't sacrifice your children. God doesn't want it. All right, so Ruth is happening at the same time as Judges. Anybody familiar with the story of Ruth? Okay, so I don't know if you noticed or not, but Ruth is David's great, great, great plus grandma. Yeah. And she eventually gives birth to David via grandparents' line, you know what I'm saying? And then David gives birth to Jesus, right? So, grandparents' line. David is not, okay, David is not Jesus' dad, but you get it. All right. So, on one hand, God uses the book of Ruth to start that. I'm going to start figuring out this king problem. Because y'all need a king, y'all need a good king, and we need a way for the ultimate king to come. So, I'm going to use Ruth to start that piece. Got it? Check. Good. Ruth. First Samuel is the beginning of how we're going to address this other half. Everybody deal with right in their own half, in their own eyes. 
And the stories merge together right in the middle of Samuel's scene. You see this narrative, we need a king, we need someone who uh, can lead us to what's right. They merge in 1 Samuel. So that's what we're going to read. That's a little bit of a spoiler. Other preachers are going to preach that. I'm just giving you some context. Does it make sense? Yes. All right. Cool. Good job. Y'all tracking. All right. So uh, now we're going to start reading. So if you have a Bible or a cell phone or a neighbor um, who has those items, not just a neighbor, but a neighbor with those items, let's turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you go to chapter 2, you're too far. All right. The first part of 1 Samuel uh, has several names that are hard to pronounce, so I'm just going to tell you what happened there for my sake. All right, there was a guy. His name is Elkanah. Okay, what's the guy's name? Elkanah. Very good. Y'all all sound like Southerners like me. I love him. <laughs> the first, there's a guy. His name is Elkanah. He has two wives. One's wife's name is Hannah. The other wife's name is Penina. Ooh, Penina. <laughs> I, I, it's not good to say you hate people. By the end of the story, I was like, girl, it's on site. If I see you, if I see you, I'm going to fight you today. Okay, so uh, Elkanah, two wives, Hannah, and Penina. Then there's also Eli. Eli. E Eli, good job. He has a, he's a priest. He has two sons, Hophni and Phineas. Not Phineas and Ferb, Hophni and Phineas. <laughs> All right, that's the people. Those are the six people that you need to be paying attention to. All right, so um, Elkanah and his family, every year, um, they go up to worship the Lord. And we're about to read about that. But there are things that you should know. One, uh, Penina had a lot of kids. A lot of kids. Hannah couldn't have kids. Hannah has none. Penina has more than one. All right, so that's what you should know. Let's start reading that verse 3. It's going to be long, but I think we should grow in reading the Bible together. It's really good for us. All right, let's do it. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord, the host, the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. The man is Elkanah. Where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and, uh, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And Hannah answered, no, my Lord. Maybe she didn't have that tone. 
but <laughs> she answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. Some translations after that say, and it's much too early to be drinking. This one doesn't. But I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard, regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my vexation and anxiety. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to the house of Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, because I have asked for him from the Lord. All right. Y'all make it through then? Very nice. Okay, so I wanted, that was a lot of stuff happening. We see kind of the end before the beginning, or before we talk about it. But I want to highlight a couple really significant sections. First, there's a section of three through eight. These are all the reasons why I want to fight tonight. First of all, Elkanah, I don't recommend having two spouses. Let's just start with that, okay? I don't recommend it. You do what you want to do. I don't recommend it. Because how are we going to navigate this jealousy? There's no way that we're not going to have jealousy. If I cook and you cook and he thinks your food tastes better, what are we going to do? I don't know. So I don't recommend that. But okay, Elkanah has two wives. Great. Paniah is awful. It says that this woman used to irritate her so bad that Hannah would cry and cry and cry and not eat. I don't know if you've ever cried so much that you couldn't eat, but that's a low place. You must really be getting on my nerves that I can't, I can't even eat. The Bible says that year after year, Hannah would make this journey up to, um, where is this place? Up to Shiloh from wherever she lived. And the whole time, Panani's like, yeah. Okay, he loves me. That's why I got these babies. The whole time, the kids running around. She's just thinking, I, I don't have any kids. I don't, I don't have an ability to make kids. I've been trying. And clearly, Elkanah loved her more because he gave her a double portion. So I think this even further fueled Penina's way of irritating Hannah. And so she's been doing this for years. And even still, this year, she cried so much that she couldn't eat. You would think she would be over it by now. We've been doing this for a long time. But no, clearly, Panana is great at this. She's getting progressively more awful. So this is, this is Hannah's situation. And if you know biblical times, you know that being a woman uh, not, and not being able to have kids, it's like shame on shame. There were some ideas about what women should be able to do. Maybe there were some arguments about that. But having kids, there was no argument about it. If you're a woman, you should be able to make kids. So what does that mean about me? If I'm a woman and I can't make kids, do I have any purpose in society? Do I have any value in society? And Penina is standing in my ear telling me that I don't, consistently. This is a sad situation for Hannah. But what I want you to pay attention to is the thing that I think when Katie first said it to me, and then when I read it myself, I was like, wait a minute, God. And I have a slide for this. Verse 5 says, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now I want you to pay attention to that. The Lord had closed her womb. And the scripture says it twice. The Lord had closed her womb. Something, something, something. And the Lord had closed her womb. 
Now this is interesting because other women in the Bible who um, couldn't have kids, it says because she was barren, because she was unable to have kids. This is a different situation because it says here, the Lord closed her womb. This is not the same situation. And so I'm reading this and I'm like, what's up God? Why would you, why would you do this to her? Like you know what this creates for a woman in this society, you understand the context that Hannah is living in? Why would you do this to her? And why would you repeat it just in case I thought it was a, a typo? Why would you say it twice? Why have you closed her womb? Why have you left her to this place of infinite shame and desperation and ridicule from her enemy? Why have you left her there? I could understand if this is just her circumstance or this is what it is, but you did this. Why would you do this? Really, you feel a little bit angry. Because that's it doesn't sound like God. Like, why would you do this? So that's the first thing I want you to pay attention to. This pain in Hannah's life brings her to a place of despair. Now, up to this point in scripture, we don't have any record that Hannah did anything besides just cry and not eat. And I get why you said, but that's what she does. So far, all we know is Hannah's gonna cry, Hannah's not gonna eat, we're gonna do our sacrifices, we're gonna go back home. Next year, we're gonna come back, she's gonna cry, she's not gonna eat, then we're gonna come back and eat sacrifices, right? Okay, great. That's all we know about Hannah so far. But this time, something different happens for Hannah. This time, while Penina is irritating her, while her husband is trying to console her but failing miserably, this time, Hannah does something different. Verse 9 says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And this is the first time that we have any account that that's what she did. She rose and she went to where the priest Eli is. Now, Eli is a super corrupt priest. You'll learn about that in the next couple of preachers coming to tell you about it. Eli is super corrupt and his kids are even worse. Eli is sitting in a chair. This is uh, at a time where everybody sits on the floor because we only have money to sit on the floor and Eli sitting in a chair. So he's already highlighting how much greater he is than everybody else. People are coming to sacrifice, pouring their hearts out, and he's just sitting in a chair. Might as well be a girl. Clearly out of touch, right? He is supposed to be the person who is hearing from the God, from God um, making intercession for them, making uh, sacrifices on their behalf. But he's supposed to be this bridge between the people and God, and he is sitting on a chair while they sit on the floor. And Hannah comes over and is like grieving before the Lord. And she is like praying and she is pouring her heart out so much so that she looks drunk. And I don't know if you've ever been in a place of despair that people look at you like, girl, sir, you okay? But this is the place that Hannah is in right now. And Eli is so out of touch and she's drunk. He's not aware. It's his responsibility to be aware of what's happening in the spirit for people. He's totally missing it. And yet, in all of this, Hannah is still crying out to the Lord. And this is what um, I want to pay attention to. I really don't have a long sermon. As I'm preaching and I'm realizing this is going to be short. But I just want to tell you what's happening. For Hannah, this anguish produced something different in her. All these other times, I don't know what it's produced. But in this moment, it produced the kind of desperation, the kind of any the kind of, I don't know, lowness and humility that's like, I don't care about nothing else. 
I don't care about Penina. I don't care about Alcana trying to clear me up. I don't care about the priest thinking that I'm a drunk woman. I don't care about this being the middle of the day and people can see me right now. I don't care about any of that stuff. I need you right now, God. And I cannot do this another day. I don't care about none of that stuff. Come to me right now, Lord. That's the place that she comes to. And she says to him, Lord of hosts, I think I have a slide for this. She says to him, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on my affliction, if you will remember me and not forget me and give me a son, I will give him to you all the days of your life. This is the most beautiful thing. She, she called out to him, Lord of hosts, and this is the first time we ever see this phrase for God mentioned in scripture. This is the first time. The, um, the Greek, oh, not Greek, the Hebrew translates the word to be um, Jehovah Sabbath. Can y'all say that? Jehovah Sabbath. Very good. All right, I have a slide for this. Jehovah Sabbath. Now some translators will say that means the Lord of Heaven's armies, right? But some older commentators, some people who read it a little bit earlier, that's not it. Keep going. It's a little bit further. That's it. Jehovah Sabbath, right? Some people say it means the Lord of Heaven's armies, but some commentators translate this name of God to be the Heavenly King on a cherubim throne. Now this is interesting because in this desperation, in this super low place that Hannah comes to, she encounters God in a way that no one else has encountered God yet. We have met him as our deliverer, we've met her as our healer, we've met him as our friend, but nobody has called upon him yet. He has not yet revealed himself as the heavenly king on a cherubim throne. Now think about the context of this time period. What did we keep hearing in Judges? In this time, there was no king in Israel. And people did what they think they were, what was best in their own eyes. But here, this low place of desperation leads Hannah to meet God in a way that is perfect for her and perfect for this time. She meets God in a way that we've never seen him before, having the king on a chair of a throne. So at first, here, here, God is starting to reveal himself in this way. She is being positioned for this divine setup that's happening right here. Not just in her womb, but in the earth, right? So she's called out to God by this new name, and the Lord responds to her through Eli. Thank God. Eli is like, okay, bless you. May the Lord give you what you've asked. And she goes home, and she gets pregnant. I know it. That was clapping. It's so great. She goes home, and she gets pregnant. And she gets pregnant with this son. And it seems like after this moment of prayer, um, the scripture said that she got up, she went and got some food, and she went home. It seems like everything about Hannah shifts in this moment. It's, before then, it just seemed like she just, oh, my life, so terrible. And it was pretty terrible. But in this moment, Hannah is eating, she's up, and then the Bible says in the next section, um, that the next year came, and Elkanah was like, come on, everybody, we're gonna go up to give sacrifices. She's like, no, I need to nurse this baby, I need to wean him, and then I'll be up to sacrifice him to the Lord. This woman just shifts. Like, you can see this new focus and purpose on this woman's life because of this encounter that she had with God in this moment. So she goes, she uh, keeps the baby for three years. Um, she nurses him, and then she does exactly what she says. She takes him up to Eli the corrupt priest, and gives this baby that she cried about, that she worshiped for, 
that she desired for all these years, she gives this baby to this corrupt priest in service to the Lord. I don't know if I could do it. I, knowing that Eli is as wicked as he is, knowing that I labored for this baby the way that I did, knowing that this is the first thing that Panina has shut up about, I don't know if I could give this baby to him. Not Hannah. Hannah gives him up, and then after that, she starts worshiping. And she says this whole song. She starts singing. She gives her baby up, and then she starts singing. And then what she sings, I have slides for this. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But what she sings is totally different than the attitude that she has. She starts in verse 2 by saying, um, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more very proud. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him my actions are weighed. Then she starts to talk about the mighty being brought low, um, all the rich will be poor, the hungry will be filled, the field will be hungry. She gets a, you hear this? She gets a revelation of the kingdom, because that's what the kingdom is. The, this reversal of what is up is down, and what is down is up, and we're all coming to the middle to meet Jesus, who is exalted above everything. She gets a revelation of this kingdom in this worship, and she ends the section by saying, suspense, by saying, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will, strength, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, Israel has never had a king. What are you talking about, Hannah? What are you talking about? She has encountered God, and she plucked right out the heart of God this new thing that he's doing in this season. He gave it to her first as he revealed himself to her as a king, the Lord, the heavenly king, sitting on a cherubim throne. So then when she comes three years later to worship, what she ends up saying is the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing. Hannah has shifted because this revelation of God has come. Are y'all with me? Okay. So that is the context that I want to preach and what I want to say from that is a couple things. One, I'm still paying attention to why the Lord closed her womb. And I think why the Lord closed her womb was because this desperation, this period of suffering, anguish, ridicule, turmoil, things not working out, because you know they had to have been trying to have a baby for a while for her to be in desperation. All of that created humility and lowness and just a different kind of consecration for this woman and a different kind of holiness in her womb. So that when time came for her to have a baby, when the Lord answered this prayer, when he opened her womb up, what would come out of that would be holy and consecrated to him. Yeah. And that's necessary because of who Samuel is about to be. Yeah. Samuel is about to, to uh usher in this new era of Israel having a king, which will be the backdrop for us understanding why we need Jesus to be our king. Like, this is the beginning of that era, and Samuel had to be completely in tune with the Lord in order to have that not mixed with all this other stuff that was around in Judges. He needed to serve the Lord from day one. He needed to be in the temple from day one. He needed to be hearing God from day one, because when I speak to you, I'm about to say stuff that people have not heard before, it's gonna ruffle some feathers, it's gonna cause some problems, but I need you to hear me clearly from day one. And so I need to have a woman who's gonna give me her son from day one so I can have him. 
And Hannah, in submitting to the Lord, came to this place of having what was in her consecrated to, to enough for her to be like, absolutely. Absolutely. And not just like, I want to do this, God, but I'm reluctant in my heart. But, but absolutely. And I will worship you afterwards. This kind of suffering consecrated her. This kind of suffering created the exact environment for God to do something in the earth that he had never done before. So then when you, when you think about that, you're like, oh, I see why you closed her womb. This wasn't negligence. This wasn't, um, I don't know, you being mean. This wasn't you punishing me. This wasn't you being angry at me. This wasn't you being upset. This wasn't any of that. This was you having a good plan for Hannah that would eventually be the good plan for all humans on earth forever. Amen. That was his desire for Hannah. This was not him being mad at her. And so then I think about that and I remember this moment when I'm standing at the altar and I'm thinking about my rejection and I'm thinking about my story of disappointment. And the Lord says to me, your story of rejection is not my story of rejection. I'm not writing a story of rejection for you. I'm not writing a story of disappointment for you. I'm not writing a story of, of sadness, of suffering. I'm not writing that. That might be a plot point in your story, but I'm, that's not the story that I'm writing. The story that I'm writing is one of absolute redemption. The story that I'm writing is one that's consistent with every part of my character. It's a story of victory. It's a story of goodness. It's a story of unending mercy and love everlasting. It's a story of the lonely coming into family. It's a story of the, the sick being healed. That's the story that I'm writing. Every characteristic you can find in God, that is the story that he's writing. So there are plot points in our story that are like, whew, I don't know if this is going to be okay, but that's not what he's doing. And what he did with Hannah was this suffering and this pain created a position to where she was able to fix her eyes on God because she didn't have anything else. And when she saw him, she got a revelation of him. Not because she did anything special, but because this was his desire. He revealed himself as the Lord of hosts. He gave that name to her. He closed her womb. He did this work for her. The Bible says that he has stored up good works for us that we should walk in them. This was his plan for Hannah, for Hannah from the beginning. And he was so good to position her to receive it. Man, what, what a gift it is to have somebody want to give me a gift and to make it so, so that I can't disqualify myself from the gift that they want to give me. Because I'm really good at that. I'm really good at being like, no, are you sure? No, that's okay. I don't deserve it. I'm unworthy. No. I'm really good at that. But the Lord was like, forget all that. I'm going to position you to be able to receive this thing. And that's good news for Hannah, but you can hear the good news for us. Because Hannah's God is our God. And the thing that he did with Hannah, the Bible said, um, Jesus actually said that John the Baptist was a great prophet, but everyone who's in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the greatest out of everybody in the Old Testament. So John the Baptist is greater than Hannah, and everyone in the kingdom is greater than all of them. So what is the Lord saying about us? He's Hannah's God, but what he's doing for us is great. It's great in the, in the earth. And that's because he's writing his story. Like Hannah's triumph at the end didn't come because her story ended great and she got to have a baby. Having a baby is beautiful and awesome, but that's not a story that's going to stay the world. 
lot of people have had babies. Those babies sometimes grow up to not be so great, so I don't know. Having a baby is always going to save you. That's not the goal. But what, what changed for Hannah was Hannah was able to find herself in his story of what he's writing and what he's doing in the earth. And in that, you see new purpose, new fulfillment, new direction pop up in her life. So, what I'd like to say to you, if I have one main point, um, this is the last point. Jesus writing a story has been this whole time. And it's a story of his goodness. Uh, Teresa said this earlier, I'll go back before I come to this. Uh, when she came here to see him, she was saying, release. I had that same word when you said that. So I was like, oh, this is God. The scripture that I thought about when I was thinking about the question, how is Jesus better than all this good stuff we're seeing in the scripture? The scripture that came to mind was um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. But I'll read the whole thing. I didn't have the whole thing up there, but now hearing Teresa's word, I want to read that whole section. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that was set before us. This is the part. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I think the reason Hannah was able to lay herself down, her desires down, her will down, the reason we were able to sing that we're laying ourselves down, our desire down, our sin down, is because he did this first. He endured the cross despite the shame. I was reading this and it really struck me because in our body, we love to sing, there's no more shame, take the shame off. And I love that. I think God removed the shame from me. Amen. But in this, that's not what it said that happened to Jesus here. What it says was he despised it. That means it was still there. Because you don't despise what you don't have. It was still there. And he endured it. He endured the cross despite the shame that came from the cross. The shame didn't, he didn't allow the shame to distract him from enduring this cross. For the joy set before him, which was us. Which was that we would be connected with him. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So I think sometimes shame is like, yes, God, remove that. But sometimes it is just a distraction. Sometimes it's just something that's trying to keep you from this thing that God is bringing you to. And you just, you just walk through. Like, the shame is here. I hate it. I don't care. Eli is actively shaming me right now. Panina is actively shaming me right now, but I don't care. That's not the point. The point is this thing that God is doing. And we can do this because Jesus did this for us. So, um... He's writing a story. He's writing his story. And he's invited you to be a part of his story. And they're suffering. But the light momentary affliction will not compare to the weight of eternal glory that you receive being a part of his story. Hannah would not be remembered. But because she found herself in his story, this woman is now the mother. They call her Kingman. She's the mother of this whole year. And the song she sings, interesting enough, the song she sings in chapter 2 is very similar to the same song that Mary sings, the mother of Jesus. So Hannah's worship becomes a prototype for 
Mary's worship, Jesus' mom. You see, it just totally positions her differently in her life. And I feel like that's what God is doing for us. I feel like that's what God is doing for our body. I think we're on the, the verge of, of something new. I think God wants to bring something new into this earth. I think he wants reconciliation. I think he wants family. I think he's doing something. But there is pain in this labor. There is uncomfortability. There is shame in this labor. Sometimes people might look at us and be like, Woo, what y'all doing over there? That's not the point. The point is that Jesus is doing something with us. And we are doing something with him. And what he's going to birth is going to be good because it's his story. He doesn't know how to write a bad story. It's an excellent storyteller. Okay, that's all I got. <laughs>